Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. We're not finished talking about the midterm elections, but... But let's let's do what we do best and look forward to the next time that people are going to be going to the polls. First of all, we thought that our next election coming up was going to be February, where we uh, are going to have an exciting list of candidates for mayor for the city of Chicago. But but no, may no. Early in December, we are going to be focusing once again on Georgia because Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, neither of them hit 50 percent. And it's really too bad because Raphael Warnock was at something like 49.4 percent of the vote. And it was just like, oh, please, another point six percent. And we wouldn't have to do this. But we do. And we will. Control of the House and control of the Senate are still not certain. Votes are still being counted. We still don't know for sure who is going to be the Senate candidate in Arizona. Yes, Mark Kelly is ahead. He has been ahead. But they still have a lot of mail-in ballots to count, so they won't call that race. And uh, it the way we, Georgia... Going to a runoff. Arizona not decided. Nevada not decided the way people are expecting. And, you know, I almost hate to say that because, you know, wasn't everybody expecting a red wave? Well, I wasn't, but I was in the minority. Uh, people are saying that they think that Arizona is likely to go Democratic, Nevada, Republican, which would make once again Georgia critically important. Because if the Senate race in Nevada does go to the Republican candidate, that gives the Republicans right there 50. If we get Arizona, it's going to be 49 to 50. So Georgia becomes, again, the pivotal state to hang on to the Senate. In the House, people are saying that they fully expect Kevin McCarthy to have a very slim majority when the votes are all counted. But they're not all counted. They're not. And uh, that's why we wait. We wait to see when we know for sure. The, the more a state uses vote by mail, the later they get their results. Um, I mean, in Maricopa County, in Arizona, there's a lot of rural area there. And even without the whole issue of mail-in balloting, It tends to take them a long time to get their votes counted. So let's just sit back, take a deep cleansing breath, in through the nose, out through the mouth, and wait. We suspect things are going to go a certain way, but the as I said, and I continue to say, the only poll that matters is the poll of the voters the counting of the votes is what determines who wins. Doesn't matter what the speculation is or what the common wisdom is or what everybody thinks is going to happen or what their exit polling tells them is going to happen. We wait. We wait, we wait, we wait. Uh, we are going to get back to some of the interesting races and how they went. But first, 
A big announcement here in Chicago. We have a new entrant in the race for mayor of the city of Chicago. Jesus Chuy Garcia this morning made a formal announcement that he is in. He is going to be running against Lori Lightfoot, whom he endorsed in the previous mayoral election over Tony Preckwinkle. Chuy Garcia, a congressperson, becomes, oh gosh, let's see, Ray Lopez, Willie Wilson, Alderman Sawyer, Paul Vallis, Cam Buckner, Jamal Green, Alder Sophia King, Brandon Johnson. He becomes at least, I may be forgetting somebody, but at least the ninth. I think he's number nine. Uh, I'm sure if I'm forgetting somebody, you'll you'll remind me. And there's still a list of people who are toying with the idea. Supposedly Alderman uh, Brian Hopkins, Alderman Tom Tunney, uh, former Governor Pat Quinn. Uh, even city treasurer Melissa Conyers Irvin has kind of made noises that, you know, maybe she wants to run for mayor. It's going to be, um, how many people did we have? I think we had 4,000 people in the initial race last year, last time we voted for mayor. Okay, slight exaggeration, but that's what it felt like. And, uh, you know, we're going to have a large number. Unless somebody runs away with it in February, we will again do a runoff like we did with Lori Lightfoot and Tony Preckwinkle. But um, before we get to that in December, we should be looking at a vote in Georgia. They said um, that it would probably, the runoff would probably be held in four weeks. Potentially, that could put us at the end of November. Potentially. We'll see when we get uh, a firm date on that. So this morning out at Navy Pier, a crowd gathered to hear what Chewy Garcia had to say. Uh, But at the same time he was doing that, his campaign dropped a video that they had made about who he was and what he's doing. It's interesting because there was... Well, it kind of it was a poorly kept secret that Chewy was going to run. And apparently Marianne Ahern was uh, in downtown Chicago and happened to run across Chewy and a camera crew shooting what sure appeared to be some kind of political something or other. Um, but this is really it's official now, but it's not a huge shock or a surprise. Anyway, I want to share with you. The video that Chewy uh, released today to talk about his campaign. Listen to this. There is no other place like Chicago, and I'm proud to call this city my home. Yeah. And more importantly, our home. Yeah. A home where we recognize our indigenous beginnings and pay respect to our black immigrant founder, John Baptiste Point du Sabo. It's a city that makes you carry yourself a certain way because you know you're part of something big. You feel it when you ride the L or when you drive down the Eisenhower or Lakeshore Drive or when you catch a glimpse of the city on your way to Midway or O'Hare. It's knowing that we're the city of broad shoulders 
the city where the labor movement was born in the eight-hour day. Chicago. Our pride in calling Chicago home is what binds us together. We hope for a safer, more prosperous Chicago because we and the city deserve it. That's why today I'm announcing my candidacy for mayor of the city. Well, that wasn't his campaign video, but that was the announcement that he made today at Navy Pier. Uh, tomorrow on Friday, when we do hits or misses, I will share with you the audio of his actual video release that talks again about him, his background and why he wants to do what he's going to do. Uh, we've got lots more to talk about. Let's take a break and get to it right after this. This is Joan Esposito, live, local and progressive on WCPT 820. So a lot of talk uh, today, post-midterm election, um, a lot of talk today is about Donald Trump because um, he's apparently very upset that the candidates that he backed did not do better. By all accounts, people are very upset with him holding him responsible for the fact that the candidates he supported did not do better. There was supposed to be a red wave. And then Donald Trump's plan, apparently, was to ride that red wave. And this next week, probably on Tuesday or Monday, make the big announcement that he was running for president in 2024. Except that because there was no red wave, some are describing it as a red puddle, Um, Apparently, Trump's closest advisors are now telling him that he should wait until after the Georgia runoff election to make his announcement that he is running for president. They seem to feel that if Herschel Walker can somehow pull out a win, that that will be something that Donald can take credit for, like he was planning to take credit for the red wave. He actually went on cable television before the election and said that if his candidates won, he should get all the credit. But if his candidates lost, he should not get any of the blame, which is kind of a very Trumpian uh, point of view to take on this. And apparently he is also, of course, very upset that Ron DeSantis did so well in Florida People, you know, starting to talk about, you know, DeSantis 2024. By all accounts, uh, the, the the conventional wisdom is that Ron DeSantis will wait until after the Florida legislative session wraps up in May before he makes his announcement that he is running for president. That's that's the speculation. And again, nobody knows what Trump's going to do. He's apparently asking everybody in his circle, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And it sounds like from everything I've read this morning, pretty much everybody is saying, don't do it next week. Don't do it next week. You know, wait. And if you can, you know, if Herschel Walker can pull this out, then you can kind of ride that victory and declare your candidacy. But he's not he's not talking about what he is going to do, but he is getting a lot of grief. 
I told you that generally I don't read the editorial pages of any publication because I just want to read the news and come to my own conclusions. I don't really care unless it's something interesting or out of the ordinary. I don't care what somebody's opinion is. I really I really don't. Maybe if it's well written or if it's particularly insightful or thoughtful, I might give it a read. But other than that, um, one of the people who contributes to the editorial pages of The Wall Street Journal is Carl Rove, the um, Republican operative not known for his moderation, shall we say? Uh, (laughs) Here's part of what Karl Rove wrote today. The GOP fielded too many novices who struggled with crafting a message, raising funds, and waging effective campaigns. Some were also knuckleheads, with strange beliefs and closets full of problems. (laughs) Republicans had a simple problem. Too many nominees were nuts or knuckleheads. How do you like that? Later in his essay, uh, he said, there's no getting around the enormous disappointment for Republicans. The party must nominate better candidates, particularly for statewide office, and reject the nuts. How's that for a philosophy? Moving forward, let us reject the nuts. Mr. Trump turned what should have been a referendum on Mr. Biden's terrible record into a choice between himself and the current president. As in 2020, lots of voters chose Biden. I mean, Karl Rove is not a big supporter of Donald Trump, but he is... Well, I guess compared to the hard right candidates that exist now, he's not looking as crazy as he once did. But he's not what anybody would call a moderate middle of the road kind of guy. Knuckleheads and nuts. This was the problem. Why wasn't there a red wave? Because we nominated knuckleheads and nuts. You know? Hey, I'm not saying he's wrong. Oh, and... um even though um, President Trump supported Herschel Walker and previously campaigned for him right after shortly after he won in Florida, uh, Ron DeSantis told people, yeah, he's going to come to Georgia. He's going to campaign for Herschel Walker. Can can we say rubbing salt in the wound? Can we say that? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know if. um Donald Trump can always be counted on to do what he perceives to be best for Donald Trump. He wanted to declare his candidacy next week. He wanted to point to a red wave and claim that he was responsible for it. And he's still trying to do that, you know. He's still um, trying to say that, Candidates when he was when he was running for president, you know, the candidates he campaigned for and supported, they were all elected handily. You know him. He's always going to try to find the way that he looks like a winner. So what's the speculation? What do we think is going to happen? My feeling is the only reason that he has not to wait till the Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock runoff would be 
as many people think, many people think that Merrick Garland is very, very, very close to indicting Donald Trump. And Donald Trump wants to already be a declared candidate for president when that happens. Because then he can say, oh, yeah, look what happened. I told them I was going to run again. And what did they do? They indicted me. Mm-hmm. See, this is this is that deep state I've been telling you about. If he waits four weeks to try to basically ride the coattails of Herschel Walker, Herschel Walker, who is by no means a shoe in. Does he lose that opportunity to convince his followers that the DOJ is coming after him politically? He's got to be a candidate for that to happen. If the DOJ decides to indict him at the end of next week and he's not a candidate and then he declares himself a candidate, that really weakens that whole argument. I mean, I'm sure he'll still make the argument that they're coming after him, but it weakens that argument substantially. So uh, Donald is sitting off in a quiet room somewhere trying to figure out what is best for Donald, as he always does. And we will wait. We will wait to see. We will wait to see what happens. It's kind of like um, watching, a, um, knowing that there's a race going on. You know, will America Garland indict before Donald Trump has a chance to make himself a candidate? <laughs> if I had to bet at this moment in time, I would bet that Donald Trump declares himself a candidate next week because who knows how the Raphael Warnock Herschel Walker runoff's going to go. The only thing that scares me, Tom Hartman was talking about this earlier today. If you, if you were listening to him, one thing that he looked at was the Republican vote that Brian Kemp got in Georgia versus the Republican vote that Herschel Walker got. Brian Kemp got 3% more Republicans voting for him than Herschel Walker did. Tom Hartman believes that those white Republicans who couldn't bring themselves to vote for Herschel Walker probably voted libertarian. Instead, there was a libertarian candidate on the ballot. So the question becomes, with that option removed, what do those Republicans do who really didn't want to vote for Herschel Walker. If there is the only other option is voting for a Democrat. Do they stay home? Do they hold their nose and vote for Herschel Walker anyway? Because any Republican, no matter how damaged is better in their minds than any Democrat, no matter how upstanding and well-educated and intelligent they might be. Tom Hartman also believes that in Georgia particularly, more so even than a lot of other states, that there's a real racist element to the vote, that there are a lot of white Republicans, and there's pretty much still a white power structure in Georgia, but there's a lot of white Republicans who simply don't want to vote for any candidate who's African-American. If they really feel that strongly, then my guess is in the runoff, they'll just stay home which could be good for Raphael Warnock. If they decide that party means more than even their distaste 
for electing a black candidate, then that 3% that voted for Brian Kemp but didn't vote for Herschel Walker will turn out and might vote for Herschel Walker, which might make things... This is definitely not going to be an easy layup for Raphael Warnock. It is not. But as he is saying today, you know, he did this once before. When he went up against Kelly Leffler, everybody was thinking, oh, it's Georgia. You know, she's tall and blonde and white, and she's already in the Senate. Oh, this Raphael Warnock guy, he doesn't have much of a shot. And he beat her. What will happen when he goes up against a Republican who is a black man just like he is? Will the white racist vote in Georgia stay home? Or will they decide that putting a Republican in office, particularly if it turns out that this seat is going to determine control of the Senate, you know, their party is going to be exhorting them to get out and vote because of the larger issues involved. Even if you hate Herschel Walker, get out and vote. It's not going to be an easy one. It's not going to be a layup by any stretch of the imagination. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk about some local issues when we come right back after this. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. The Better Government Association is probably the strongest organization we have when it comes to sifting through and analyzing data. It's a big job, but if you know how to really look at the data you can learn some amazing things about government and about budgets and about what works and what doesn't work. Um, Jeffrey Cubbage is with the Better Government Association and recently did a budget analysis looking at public safety in the city of Chicago. And the numbers told a very interesting story. Uh, Jeffrey joins us now to share that with us. Jeffrey, thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for that and for that wonderful introduction of the Better Government Association, too. We're, we're very flattered. Well, I love the BGA. I have David Kidwell on and Casey Toner on and David Greising on all, all the time because you guys, you do work that nobody else really does at least doesn't certainly doesn't do it as well as you guys do it. You will take the time and you will sift through the data and you will look at the numbers and you will be able to tell us things that without that work, you don't know about government and how well it's doing. So this um, this report, this analysis of Chicago's Office of Public Safety. Tell me a little bit about this. Tell our listeners about this if they didn't see uh, the article you published. 
Yeah, thanks very much for that. So this was, like you said, a pretty specific look at uh, one public safety office, the Office of Public Safety Administration. And that was a new city department that Mayor Lightfoot created in her first budget. The 2020 budget was the first year that this department existed, um, you know, had funds appropriated to it. And the goal we were told when it was rolled out was uh, essentially efficiency and cost savings. Right. The, the point of this department was to consolidate a bunch of non-uniform public safety roles under one roof. So taking roles out of CPD, CFD, the Office of Emergency Management and Communications, you know, all of those departments that all had their own in-house, everything from HR services, you know, to um, secretarial services, things like that. It was putting all of those into one office as a cost-saving measure was the theory. Um, Better Government Association wanted to check that. We wanted to see how that had worked. So we sat down and we looked at the three years of budgets going into this years that we had. Um, and what we found was that on the personnel side, they did achieve some savings. They eliminated a few redundant positions. Um, you know, they cut uh, down to, uh, uh, I want to say it was about uh, 20 titles or something like that. And they, they saved 40 or so million dollars there. But at the same time, they've created a new department and added all of the various overhead costs, you know, everything from office space to janitorial services that comes with that. And the net cost increase ended up being about $151 million. So we wound up spending more on the same appropriation categories than CPD, CFD, and OEMC, the departments that existed previously, had been combined. <laughs> That's just uh, – did that when – you, when you saw that result, were you surprised by that? We were, honestly, because and, – and look, long term – this may start to change, right, because personnel is both an immediate expense and it's a long-term expense. You take on pension costs, you take on health care costs, things like that. So the needle could start to move on this, but I was very surprised to see how much they were spending on non-personnel categories and that there weren't corresponding reductions on the police, the fire, and emergency communication side of it, right? You know, if you've got a new department that's going to be spending X million dollars on these things that they are supposedly taking over from police and fire, you expect to see a corresponding drop on the other side of the ledger. And that, I think, is really what hurt this rollout, is that the, the other departments didn't substantially reduce their savings, um, certainly not by the time we get to 2022 when the, um, the Office of uh, Emergency, um, excuse me, the uh, new Public Safety Administration is, is fully up and running. I was um, watching part of the city council meeting where the budget was passed, and I, unless I missed it, Jeffrey, I didn't hear any of the alders speak up and and talk about this uh, analysis and or have any questions about it. I mean, the budget did indeed get passed. Were were you um, expecting anybody to say, well, you know what, what about this? We got some questions along those lines, not when the budget was passed, but during the Office of Public Safety Administration's hearing, you know, when that department came forward, there were some questions that kind of nibbled around the edges of it. Nobody, you know, stood up on the floor of city council and, you know, waved our report in their hands and said, BGA says you're costing us $150 million. What do you say to that? You know, there was no moment like that. But um, <laughs> there were certainly some questions. There was about, no hey, Jimmy Jackson. Stewart moment, you know, like yeah. standing up in front of uh, the reg- other legislators going, by God, this is the right thing to do. Yeah, and, and you don't see much of that in Chicago City Council, right? That's that's um, not how it's been for many years, although uh, we're certainly starting to see a little more restlessness uh, lately than we have in years past. But, um, you know, so there were some questions that sort of nibbled around the edges. And, and um, to the budget chair's credit, Alderman Pat Bell, she um, sort of started that hearing off by asking the, the office to speak to it. You know, she said, you know, the pump to the Public Safety Administration, you're a new department, you've had some increased costs. You know, some people may say, where are the efficiencies? Do you want to speak to that? Um, and the 
the answers we got at that hearing mostly did focus on the personnel side, you know, which is understandable because that's where they're seeing some success. They were able to, to demonstrate, hey, we have taken some roles that were previously being filled by uniformed officers, and now we have people who are employees of the Public Safety Administration who don't make the same salary and get the same benefits as a uniformed police officer doing that. So um, they're starting to see some of the successes they're hoping for. It just hasn't come anywhere near to outweighing the cost of spinning up that new office. Um, and that all takes place, as you know, in the sort of larger context of how the city of Chicago's public safety spending overall can be hard to put a single dollar value on, right? It's spread across multiple mm-hmm. departments. The pensions are not counted in those department budgets. They're counted in a category called finance general. Um, you know, you have lawsuit costs that are being calculated and paid in some years out of department budgets and in some years out of the finance general. So um, Office of Public Safety Administration has added to that. You know, it's basically just added another department that counts toward our total cost of the broad umbrella of public safety spending in the city of Chicago. Um, um, and our article doesn't dive into it because it was designed to be a budget analysis. We only wanted to talk about budget numbers, but you will see sometimes in city council hearings, it's caused some operational confusion too. There are definitely moments where they'll be talking about things like uh, license plate readers and uh, cameras, the police cameras, the pod cameras around the city. You'll see older people, you know, people who are elected representatives who still have some confusion about wait, is it the police who run this program or is it Office of Public Safety Administration who runs this program or is it Emergency Management and Communication that runs this program? And, you know, it's, it's not heartening to see that kind of confusion from uh, the folks who are running the Lord offices and uh, passing the budget. So, um, Did you speak to Jonathan Silverstein? No, uh, no, I, I didn't. Because I know AD, when A.D. Quigg wrote about your work in the Tribune, um, that was one of the sources that she went to, and his argument uh-huh. was, that one of the big problems is that there's no transparency, you know, um, and, you know, how do you deal with a budget? It's just exactly like you were saying. Pensions aren't included. Um, is this just because we've always had this kind of an unwieldy system or as we know that uh, politicians sometimes don't always want to uh, maybe have the public know exactly what is going on financially. Was the system designed to be confusing, Jeffrey? Uh, You know, it's one of those where you never want to ascribe malice where incompetence can do, right? Or I shouldn't say incompetence. (laughs) If those are my two choices, I don't know. I I think if you were going to come after me, I think I'd rather you say I did something with malice rather than incompetence. I don't, I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist who's saying they're trying to keep information from us, right? I, I think the, the city's budget process in particular is something that has evolved over many years um, and somewhat organically, right? You know, changes get little changes get made over every year that add up to some pretty big changes. But it does result in a lot of difficulty on the part of the public in putting really hard dollar and cent numbers on what we're spending. Um, and, uh, you know, you'd mentioned Silverstein's analysis that A.D. Quigg mentioned in the Tribune, and I thought that was a good analysis. He really highlights um, that finance general category, which is not, it's funding that's not ascribed to a particular department. So it's just sort of citywide expenses. Um, that's grown a lot. And the share of the budget it takes up has grown a lot. So what that tells us is that over various years and various administrations, more and more costs have been split off from departments and put into this big bucket, um, which is a staggeringly huge number. You know, it's always the largest expense category, much larger than any individual department. Um, So dollars are a lot easier to lose in there and a lot easier to seem small in comparison to the size of that number. 
Um, so, and, and the biggest one, of course, like you said, was is, is pensions. You know, the fact that all of our pension costs and our healthcare benefit costs as well, uh, reti- retirement benefits of any sort, get lumped into that one bucket. Makes it very hard to say, okay, if we've hired one new police officer this year, I know how much that salary costs this year. How much does that cost the city? In future years, what's the budget for all of the other people we've hired? That is very, very hard to calculate. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with uh, Jeff- Jeffrey Cubbage, who's a policy analyst at the Better Government Ast- Association, and looked at uh, the public safety budget for the city of Chicago. We're going to take a real quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk to him about some other reporting that came out after uh, the BGA published this and some some pushback that the city of Chicago uh, gave to Channel 7. We'll talk about that right after a break. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Jeffrey Cubbage, who's a policy analyst with the Better Government Association. And you can go, if you want to read um, his reporting, his findings, go to bettergov.org. BetterGov.org, and you can look, uh, search for budget analysis, and it will come up. Bottom line is, uh, this report, um, some members of city council paid attention to it, and it got coverage in the Tribune. It got coverage on some of the TV stations when, uh, Channel 7 did a report on this. Uh, Jeffrey, here's how they, they summarized in one sentence. In its latest analysis, the Better Government Association found the city's Public Safety Administration, or PSA, has cost the city more than it's saved, which, as you said, you know, may not be the way the numbers look forever, but at this moment in time, that's what the numbers say. And uh, Channel 7 went on to say the following is the city's response to the report. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read the first a couple of sentences. The BGA article on August 23rd regarding the Public Safety Administration was inaccurate. The article focuses on increases between two years of budgets, fiscal year 19 and fiscal year 22, without understanding the reasoning behind the increases. What do you say to that? Um, well, first off, I, let me say we always appreciate it when the city actually responds to these articles, right? You know, it's very, very heartening to know they <laughs> That's are. That's better than being ignored, isn't it? And taking it seriously, yeah. Um, and and the other thing I'd highlight, uh, honestly, obviously they're going to respond. Obviously they're going to want to defend what they're doing, and we we appreciate and understand that. I sort of appreciated that they they talk about it and they say, you know, well, it was without understanding the reasoning behind the increases. I disagree with that, but I noticed they're not disagreeing with the numbers, right? No one is coming out and saying BGA's numbers are wrong. The dollar amounts they're saying aren't true. They're just saying, well, there's context. There's reasons for it. Um, So that's kind of heartening. You know, that tells me, all right, the numbers were right. We were correct in reporting how much this was costing us. Now the city just wants to talk about why they're spending that much money. Um, 
And they, they gave some bullet points, you know, um, uh, as you said, that's on the ABC7 article, so folks can find that there if they want to. But it was primarily talking about, you know, increases in personnel costs, which come from contracts. And I agree with that. It's not like the city can change the contracted raises they've agreed to. Our point is just your department's not saving anything by moving those positions from one department to another, right? Those, well, those their argument the is that those yeah. increases, those contract increases, that data should have been removed for you to do an accurate analysis. Well, and, and that doesn't make sense to me, right? Because those positions are with the city. They are, they are, whether you put them in CPD, whether you put them in CFD, or whether you put them in this new office, the city employs those people. They are paying those people to do public safety work. So you can't claim that you've saved money by moving them out of one department to another. Um, you know, and, and the same goes for a lot of the increases. Uh, they talked about increased costs due to the consent decree. They talked about increased costs due to um, 9-11 computer-aided dispatch, things like that. And I'm sort of like, those costs were coming, whether you opened this office or not, right? Those are known, set, fixed public safety costs. So which line item you put it or which which department you put the line item under doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of difference. What we wanted to do with our analysis to make sure that we were really only talking about the effectiveness of this department as a cost-saving measure was we did clear out any categories, any um, uh, appropriation categories, they're called, that public safety administration didn't touch. You know, the police department spends money on many, many, many different things, only a handful of which Public Safety Administration sort of moved into and took over from them. So we were really only comparing those things that Public Safety Administration took upon themselves and said, okay, this is now a PSA responsibility. And, you know, you expect those numbers to go up a little bit year to year. Things are going to increase with inflation, cost of services, salaries, all of that. Um, But the fact that we didn't see the drop on the police, fire, and emergency management side of the ledger when PSA took those on is really where that number for how much this ended up costing us came from. And, and like I said, the, the city, I think, did a good job providing what they thought was important context, but they're not quibbling with the math here. And I think that's the bottom line. You said that in the committee, uh, Pat Dowell asked uh, the, the city department, well, you know, the BGA has done this uh, report, you know, like, what's your response? No. Did they say no, kind no, of the same was- thing? Well, go ahead. No specific mention of BGA, no specific oh. mention of the report. It was sort of an open-ended, you know, as part of the introduction. Oh, so like some people are there, saying, the rumor oh, has it that, that yeah, you know, you're, you're a new the cool kids say. Questions. You know, I, uh, <laughs> folks should go back and, and watch if they want to get it right. I don't have our exact quote in front of in front of me, but it was basically just an invitation for the department to, you know, provide some context and um, what they thought was uh, an explanation of how much they had or hadn't saved them. And I thought, I thought that was good. I thought that was a helpful a helpful gesture on the part of the budget chair to sort of acknowledge, hey, this is a new department and people might have some questions about whether it's really doing what we hoped it would do or not. So, um, you know, that was heartening to see. Well, did they, in that committee, did they say the same things of, uh, you know, it's uh, it was a an analysis that didn't understand basically what they said no. to Channel 7. Was it that kind of a response or just like? No, no. Again, no discussion of our analysis or any, you know, response specifically to the BGA on council floor. Um, nothing of that nature. It was more just uh, uh, like I said, they, they primarily talked about the savings in personnel and then also in the success in returning some uniform personnel to field duty rather than having them working desk jobs that can be covered, covered by other staff. So um, contextualizing rather than uh, rather than arguing or, uh, you know, disagreeing with the analysis. So what's the bottom line here? What should the people who read about this in the Tribune or heard about it on Channel 7 or maybe the BGA subscribers or BGA government nerds like me who might have seen it on the website, what you've obviously captured a snapshot of a, of a moment in time. 
even you are saying, you know, down the road, these numbers might be different, but we want you to know this is what the data says right now. So has enough has enough conversation been generated by this? Do you feel satisfied? Is there more to come? I, I don't. Um, selfishly speaking, as the person who dove really deep into these numbers and kind of came up with what we thought was a pretty important story, I would have loved to see more about this on the floor of City Council, right? Um, and I, I hope that alders in the future going forward will continue to probe, hey, are we really getting our money's worth out of this, this new department or not? Um, and on the operational side, you know, really, if, if the analysis shows that a lot of the reason it's not saving us money are these non-personnel kind of overhead costs, Let's take a look at what those are and how we can rein them in. Why are we really spending this much on non-personnel expenses in a new department, I think, is a, a good question. that I don't know that that department's been made to fully answer. But outside of Alders taking it into their head to do that, you know, city council is not going to make that a priority. Um, you know, it's certainly something folks can contact their aldermen about. It's also something, um, you know, the BGA is an independent research body. We do, I think, very good research. Um, we're not unofficial uh, city investigator, right? We don't have subpoena powers. We don't have the ability to tell departments to give us their records outside of what's covered by FOIA. Um, the city has one of those. We have an inspector general. Um, if the inspector general wanted to do um, an audit, they do efficiency audits and performance audits in addition to, you know, sort of the, what people think of as the more headline getting stuff, the, the malfeasance, you know, the people, the wrongdoing investigations. They also just do performance audits and operational audits. If they wanted to take up one of those in this new office, I think that'd be really interesting to see the results of, um, particularly as we see more years of budgets go through. You know, it, it, this was only started in 2020 budget. So um, now in 2023, we'll have a fourth year, that is, of uh, numbers. So um, a couple avenues people could take with it. Um, but I, I do hope it continues to get attention. And I do hope it continues to be involved in these broader conversations about what is the actual dollar cost of public safety in the city of Chicago, because it's not just the Chicago Police Department total budget at the end of the day. When you do an analysis like this, and obviously you publish on your website, and, you know, there are people who take your information and do follow-up stories, but as far as, like you said, the IG's office is the office that might have the power to um, move forward on something or do a deeper investigation into something. Do you ever, like, call them up and say, hey, giving you a heads up, you know, got this great analysis here. I'm going to be publishing it. Could I show it to you and maybe get your reaction? Or maybe this is something that you want to run with? Because I remember back in the day, a million years ago, when dinosaurs roamed the earth and I was uh, in the business of journalism, if we had an investigation and there was... Maybe uh, we were seeing that there was a law that needed to be changed or there was a there was a gap in the law that allowed some malfeasance to take place. Sometimes before even the story was out, we would go to somebody in a position of power and say, you know, we're going to be doing this big investigation. Here's what it shows. Here's where there's a problem. You know, um. We wanted to show you this just in case you wanted to get on board and maybe draft a new law or maybe close this loophole. Does the BGA ever give anybody like the IG a heads up on this stuff? We So I, I work for the BGA's policy team, and one of the things we do is actively try to push policy to fix what we see as you know flaws in the city government or the state government as well. So, yeah, yeah, we certainly do that sort of thing um, with many of these reports that come out. One of the nice things I will say about our city inspector general – 
is they are very open to complaint or suggestion. You know, they have the form right on their website. They have a hotline. It's, it's very easy for anybody, um, better government association, reader, older person, whomever, to uh, pick up the phone and uh, give Deborah Whitsberg's office a call and say, hey, here's a thing I think you really ought to look into. Um, and And they have put out a number of reports fairly recently that are Really good deep dives. I mean, they do a good job, uh, not just, again, like I said, on what people think of as the headline investigations where someone has done something wrong and got caught, but also of the um, operational and sort of performance evaluations. Are the things the city doing working well or not? Um, so, yeah, it's definitely the sort of thing that uh, can be put on their radar and uh, I encourage folks to do. Um, when I have David Kidwell from the Better Government Association on, I always try to get him to talk about what are some of the investigations that the BGA is working on. And he always tells me that if he, you know, if he announced it, he'd have to kill me. Uh, so I don't know if I'm going to get an answer to this question, but what are you working on now? As far as the BJ investigations go, I'm actually one step further removed. The policy team operates separately. I don't get to know what the reporters are investigating, and they don't get to know what I'm analyzing until we publish. Um, and that's partly because, you know, our, our policy director is someone who's going to elected officials and talking to them about legislation mm-hmm. and policy and things like that. So um, so let me know, restate that. Me. What are you analyzing? Yeah. What are you analyzing next, Jeffrey? Ah, well, um, we, we've actually got, I think, a new one coming next week. So, uh, come Monday, there should be something bright, new, and shiny in people's inboxes if they are subscribers to the Better Government Association policy newsletter or if they uh, visit um, bettergov.org and look at the policy page there. Um, BetterGov did just launch its new uh, solutions journalism website, the Illinois Answers Project. So the whole website has a a new look, and there's a new companion website for the Illinois Answers Project. Um, And there will be a lot of new content coming on both of those. Go over the Illinois Answers Project. If I was familiar with that, I can't remember right now what that's all about. Talk about that. Yes. That's on the that's on the journalistic side of the house. It's a, a new venture to do what's called solutions journalism. So it's it's reporting on issues and with the BGA continuing to keep that focus on governmental issues, but it's also then researching into solutions. It's doing reported news pieces about here is an issue, here is what has been done in other places, for example, here are things that have worked um, in other countries. Uh, it takes a lot of different, it can look like a lot of different things, but it's the, the idea that you are not just reporting on the existing problem, you're also reporting on who's trying to solve problems like this and what does that look like. Um, so it's it's something I'm, I'm really excited for, even though I'm on the other side of the house with the policy team. Um, I think there's going to be some really good stuff coming out of it. So does that have its own website so that wouldn't be bettergov.org? Uh, yes, it, there is a link from the BetterGov website now, so it, you can hop from one to the other pretty easily. But uh, Illinois Answers Project. Oh, there you go. There's a little yellow, well, kind of orange box in the upper right corner of the BGA uh, okay. website Illinois, that says Illinois, Illinois Answers Project. Yep, and it is IllinoisAnswers.org. I was going to make sure I didn't get it wrong. Um, <laughs> brand new. IllinoisAnswers.org. Um, well, I know a, that you. BGA investigative project, so. Very exciting for us. Um, we've spent a lot of time talking about your analysis of the public safety uh, numbers. I know you've also got this new analysis of uh, the cost to Chicago of legal judgments and settlements. And I thought Lori Lightfoot was going to fix that. Wasn't that why she was going to hire a risk manager? And that was going to be one of the main cost savings for her budget going forward was that, you know, there weren't going to be any more police judgments or city judgments going forward. 
Um, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but can you can you give us kind of a little bit of a bottom line on on that analysis? Uh, you're giving away my surprise for the Monday newsletter, but I, here it it's is. already yeah, on the website, it. buddy. I'm sorry, uh, it's, it's already up there. It's out there in public. It's out there in public. Um, the bottom line is, we are over the last decade or so averaging just shy of 100 million a year on legal judgments and settlements against the city. About 93.6 million every year in legal judgments and settlements. The vast majority of that is coming from the police department. About 72 percent of that cost is coming from the police department, but that's taking into account some a handful of really big outlier cases. The Chicago Fire Department class action suit back in 2012, the Millennium Garages verdict, the red light camera. So if you take those out, it goes up to about 80% as the police department. Um, so it's large. It's, it's a substantial number. And just like you mentioned, there's not really a coordinated risk management office. And the Inspector General's office actually just dropped a report on this, I think, last month. And it was specific to the police department um, and how it was sharing settlement and legal data with the Department of Law and whether there were any risk management practices there. And basically, they found that, um, you know, it was not um, the, the shortcomings limited the city's ability to effectively manage risk. And having been in that data myself now and spent a long time sort of looking through how our settlements and judgments data is collected and uh, uh, databased, I agree with the inspector general. I think it limits your ability to analyze and, and uh, manage risk um, in terms of the city's exposure to lawsuits. Jeffrey Cubbage, thank you so much. I really appreciate your taking the time to talk about uh, your work with um, the Better Government Association. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate the chance to be on. You have a great one. You too. We're going to take a break for news and be back with much more right after this. Hello? Can anyone hear me? Okay, great. (laughs) Thought I was all alone there for a moment. Lost in the wilderness. Um, uh, We are talking once again. You thought you were finished talking about the midterms. Well, you were wrong, buddy. You were desperately wrong. Um, Pat Kreitlow joins us. We know him from Up North News, one of our favorite publications. And um, he writes about Wisconsin, which sometimes is one of our favorite states. Uh, Sometimes it's not. Uh, Pat, thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you, John. Today I'm on the fence about Wisconsin. There are some still some things about it that I really like, but I'm I'm disheartened. I'm disheartened by the fact that there was so much Republican money that poured into Ron Johnson's campaign in the end. Do you think that's what turned the tide or was there something else? Was there something with Mandela's Mandela Barnes candidacy or Ron Johnson's candidacy that led to the outcome that we uh, saw with Ron Johnson winning that seat again? Well, there obviously there are a lot of moving pieces there, and you're, you're right that there were uh, multiple factors like the ones you just named. I would dare say uh, it, it's the, the top two factors are one that you had uh, billionaires, uh, including uh, Dick and Liz uh, Eline from Uline in the Chicago area to Diane Hendricks of ABC Supply in Beloit, who saved tens if not millions of dollars, tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars directly from a tax break that Ron Johnson got for them and for other billionaires. And they then plowed tens of millions of that into super PAC ads meant to bolster Ron Johnson. Those ads were grotesquely racist and did the trick to help just enough people have some kind of hesitancy about voting for Mandela Barnes. I'm not going to take the lieutenant governor entirely off the hook. We can certainly talk about his campaign and messaging, too. But if you're going to ask what was the real difference in this race, it was the, you know, the, the blatantly 
you know, despicable ads that these billionaires bought with the tax savings that Ron Johnson gave them. Tax savings, by the way, that you and I now have to make up. Yeah. You know, I I reported for weeks and weeks on the racist dog whistles that were incorporated into Ron Johnson's ads. I didn't. I followed some of Mandela's advertising and some of his speeches, but I I didn't follow everything and didn't hear everything. Did he ever address that directly? And if he did, clearly it wasn't something that he repeated at every campaign stop. Should he have done more of just saying, hey, you know what? This is racist. Yes, I'm black. Okay, let's let's just acknowledge the elephant in the room. Yes, I'm black. Now let's go on to government. I did. Was there ever anything like that, Pat? Not in an aggressive manner. And what I just learned this morning uh, and was so depressed about it was a column in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel from Dan Bice, who who let us know something that I, I did not know previously, that one of the general consultants to Ron Johnson's campaign was also one of the people who designed the Swift Boat ads against uh. in 2004. So in essence, Mandela Barnes was swift boated. And I mean that not only in the sense that he was attacked mercilessly for something he had no part in, but that he, like Kerry, could have responded more forcefully, chose mm-hmm. not to, tried to rise above it. But unfortunately, it, it swayed you know just enough voters that you know he, he lost by just that slim margin of 27,000 votes. I know we're Monday morning quarterbacking, and it's always easy to look back and say, well, there should have been more of this, and maybe there should have been less of that. But, you know, I think that one of the things that appeals to voters about somebody like Bernie Sanders, whether you agree with Bernie Sanders or disagree with Bernie Sanders, you know, he is so passionate about whatever he says and you know it comes from uh it comes from his heart and it's real and it's honest and a lot of times it's like crankiness it's like you know it's like being a little bit mad about something and in a funny way that kind of here's who I am warts and all I think is also what initially appealed to a lot of voters about Donald Trump. He wasn't the smooth politician. You know, he wasn't somebody who was going to explain to you the intricacies of policy. He was going to talk about what he liked and what he hated, and that's and that's that. And if you're smart, you feel the same way. Sometimes I just wish Democrats, you know, would would be a little bit more in their hearts than in their heads. We talk about that a lot here. In fact, I I just talked about it uh, at lunch with uh, uh, State Senator uh, Jeff Smith, who very narrowly survived uh, and won re-election. And that in Wisconsin, Democrats quite often do the they play the nice guy card. And sometimes for somebody like Tony Evers, it works. But he was also never a career politician. He's a school teacher. We expect him to be the nice guy. I I don't begrudge Mandela Barnes in that I I can't walk in his shoes and know his awareness of where the line is toward being assertive versus being intimidating to folks in rural Wisconsin. And that's not fair. I'll be the first person Mm -hmm. to say that. But I'm I'm sure that that's something 
he and his team had to consider was. Sure. Am I going to be the scary black man who's yelling at you? Right. But, you know, if, if you if you don't go far enough, then you are, you know, it's the old axiom in, in, in politics. You know, if you don't define yourself, the other person will define you. Yeah. And what was it? Somebody also said, if you know, if you're explaining, you're losing, um, you know. Yes. Yes. And that, that, that too, I think, uh, again, I'm just trying to read minds, but I think that the Barnes team wanted to try to stay on their message and hope that independent groups and others uh, did essentially, you know, the, the, the bad cop, for lack of a better term here. And while that certainly happened, it, it didn't happen to enough of a degree. And it, there's another axiom in politics that all politics is local. And what we're seeing now in the numbers is that the local base for Mandela Barnes did not turn out the way it did four years ago. Compared to four years ago, uh, there were 47,000 fewer Democratic votes in, the, in Milwaukee County, 40,000 fewer votes in the city of Milwaukee. 40,000 compared to four years ago, when Mandela Barnes was also on the ballot running for lieutenant governor. When you lose... 40,000 votes when they don't show up in your hometown and you lose by 27,000, that's going to cause some introspection. You know, I thought that the the idea that he was Mandela Barnes was from Milwaukee was supposed to guarantee that his hometown would turn out for him. Why do you think that was the case, why they didn't, in at least in the numbers that were required? Well, I, having served in the legislature with folks from Milwaukee, uh, I will tell you, and this would surprise nobody, there isn't one meeting that everybody goes to and gets marching orders. There are there are divisions and rivalries in any community, especially a community of Democrats. And the same can be said for the black community in Milwaukee. So you're not going to get, you know, 100 percent of the black vote. No, I'm not saying that they, that he should have or that he was owed that. But clearly, when you have that much of a, of a drop off, there's either something about lack of motivation, lack of organization, lack of preparation, you know, put in put in your favorite shun. There was something mm-hmm. there that Milwaukee area Democrats will have to look at and say, what is it that was lacking that they were happy to vote for Mandela Barnes the first time? But this time around, you know, they they did not. Yeah, Um we're going to need to take a break. I actually, I wanted to talk to you about a couple of the editorials you've written about uh, things that we should be taking away from the election and the things that we should be watching. Um, I'm talking to Pat Kreitlow, Up North News, All Things Wisconsin, UpNorthNewsWI.com. We'll be back right after this. Is Joan Esposito live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820? And I am joined by Pat Kreitlow. He is the editor of Up North News. It is all things Wisconsin all the time. UpNorthNewsWI.com. He wrote an editorial, or rather, an editor's letter. I don't know what the difference is, Pat, and I don't really need to know. Um, but it was titled, Here Are Three Takeaways from the Election and Three Things to Watch. And I thought it was really interesting that your number one point was Wisconsin Democrats are stronger than many people expected. And you obviously are not basing that on the Senate race. <laughs> no, 
No, I'm not. But again, Mandela Barnes did come awfully close. So in, in my editor's letter, which is, is just a play on letters to the editor, I, I write to the readers that, you know, everybody was expecting this red wave that Evers was going to, going to go down along with Mandela Barnes and all kinds of other folks. And instead, Tony Evers won by a much larger margin than he did four years ago over Scott Walker. Uh, Tim Michaels really underperformed in Waukesha and the other Milwaukee suburbs. Evers did better. And again, if it weren't for, for those terrible commercials by, you know, billionaires and other outside groups coming in, uh, you know, that crime was at the heart of that. And remember, when I said 47,000 fewer votes in Milwaukee, 40,000 in the city of Milwaukee, those aren't all black voters. That's a whole lot of white voters in there, too, who might have watched those ads and said, yeah, gee, crime, I don't know. And, and then didn't show up to vote the way that they should have, which is also, you know, leads into my second takeaway in there is that all politics is local. Uh, Tip O'Neill said it. It's as true as it ever was. Evers knew that. He worked very hard on small business grants all over the state. Uh, and, and so he, he knew better than Scott Walker, who tried to put $3 billion into one company, Foxconn, in Racine County, that if you look out for the local economy, you're going to do better. And that's what that's what Democrats are aware of. And that's why they did better than expected. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, not related to, to your letter to the editor, but we both know from looking at demographics in most elections that the people who you can really count on to vote are pretty much 55 plus. Um, Tony Evers gives off this sort of grandfatherly, fatherly kind of vibe. Ron Johnson old white guy, and then you've got, like, Mandela Barnes, who came across, I thought, really young. And do you think that aside from the issue of race and aside of from the issue of all the money that billionaires poured into Wisconsin, do you think that Mandela's youth worked against him rather than for him in this race? Only to a degree, the, the degree that uh, he'd been lieutenant governor for four years, before that a Milwaukee area legislator. And so for the rest of the audience out here in, in northern, central, western Wisconsin, he was still relatively new on the scene compared to people like Evers. Uh, so his, his youth cut both ways. He had to introduce himself to a lot of the older people who do vote. But as I'm sure you've discussed by now, young voters, young adult voters, turned out like never before. And mm-hmm. helped, I'm sure, in part by Mandela's uh, age uh, and also their own desire to embrace diversity in progressive and in state leadership. So while, again, we, we are going to skew older here in Wisconsin with our voters, we, we ignore the young voters at our peril and while, again, it's, it's nice to have kindly older folks at the top of the ticket right now, Tony Evers, Joe Biden, we've got to be thinking about who are going to be our leaders in the near future. Certainly, national Democrats are thinking about that. And Mandela Barnes, you know, remains one of the, you know, young, attractive, ambitious, uh, you know, smart leaders in this state who needs to stay on the scene and and, uh, have other good things happen as he puts more work in and and gets better known around Wisconsin. Okay, one of your points is 
Voters want candidates who can walk and chew gum. Explain what you mean, what you mean by that. Oh, my goodness. The, the, the critics out there, they said, that, you know, Democrats, don't be focused so much on abortion rights or don't focus so much on protecting democracy, because what all the public opinion polls said, oh, it's inflation. It's the economy. You just need this economic message. And I think that what voters showed is we don't want single issue candidates. We want candidates who are both going to be looking out for my checkbook, but they're also going to be protecting my right to vote. And that the, the Democrats who did uh, show that, that they could walk and chew gum, that they were aware of social issues, but they also weren't just social issue candidates. They, they knew the importance of helping middle class families. They knew the importance of helping manufacturing in Wisconsin to improve supply chains. That awareness was rewarded by voters wherever it could be. Bearing in mind how terribly gerrymandered the state is. But, uh, you know, again, more Democrats were doing the right thing than ever before. OK, let's switch over now to the three things that you said we should be watching for in the future. And uh, let's start with number one. You title it a win win for the surplus. Tell me what you mean by that. We have a record budget surplus in Wisconsin because of how. Tony Evers managed the state economy. The but way didn't the Republicans he, like limit what he could do with that or even prevent him from accessing no, that's it? The one thing, that's the one thing they couldn't limit. They mm. they slashed the state budget and forced him to use some of that pandemic uh, economic stimulus aid in some areas. But there was enough that he could also use it toward small businesses, toward farmers, toward restaurants, all of all of those things. That he did with the pan- and as a result, the state economy, you know, did not crash as badly as it did in other states. And so, as businesses, you know, stayed afloat, as households stayed afloat, they continued to pay their taxes. And so now we have the surplus. Republicans sat on it all year. They never put it to work for families and schools and roads and everything because they were hoping Tim Michaels would win, and then they'd give it all mm. in tax cuts geared toward the wealthy. And instead, now, when I say what to watch for, my question is, will the Republican legislators finally grow up, act like adults, work with Evers on the surplus? They can both get they can get tax cuts and investments. There's more than enough there with five billion dollars. If you can't get a win win out of that, well, then, you know, that's on you. And that, that will be on the Republicans if they won't work with Evers this time. Okay, but they were. Hmm. I under you know what you're saying makes a lot of sense, but I have seen your Wisconsin Republican legislature do things before that did not make a lot of sense. So I don't know. I think maybe you're giving them a little bit too much credit. Oh, I'm not giving them any credit. That's what that's why it's something to watch for. <laughs> oh, cross cross your fingers for. Okay, that yes, suddenly yes, this watch, legislative watch. body grows up. Oh, I get it. Okay, now I understand. Yep. Thank you. That's mm-hmm. a little. Oh yeah, it's not a promise. Believe me, if I if I've learned anything in my years as a legislator and a journalist, <laughs> it's don't make yeah. promises you can't keep. <laughs> Well, I'm going to skip right away to your third thing that you say we need to watch for: decisions, decisions, and. You say uh, you're talking about Tammy Baldwin and her future plans. Surely she's just going to stay where she is and keep running. I mean, she's not going to retire. Do you are you hearing any rumors? What's going on? Oh, no, no, not at all. But it's one of those things that people if 
if you allow them enough time for speculation, it starts to take up time that could be used on preparation. So the sooner that Senator Baldwin, you know, affirms what we're all thinking, then, you know, the, the sooner that other Democrats can focus on other ambitions like congressional seats or legislative seats or what have you. On the Republican side, of course, all that jockeying is going to start right away. And if, for example, Congressman Mike Gallagher from Green Bay, if he decides he wants to try to be the Republican to challenge Tammy Baldwin in two years, then that starts the dominoes. Okay, he's leaving the congressional seat. What Republican legislators will run for that? Well, if they do, then what other people will run for those legislative seats and and so on and so on. So we we have to watch all of that. Um, And and also to see if, in fact, um, any businessman or businesswoman decides they want to try to be the next Tim Michaels and say, well, I'll do a better job than Michaels did and I will unseat Tammy Baldwin. So the, the her challenger may come from the business world, although after watching what happened to Connecticut businessman Tim Michaels, I mean, he he's back home in Connecticut and he's $20 million poor for the fight. Hmm. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Do you think he was hurt by that stupid statement where if you elect me, you'll never have to. What was it? You'll you'll never have to vote again or something absurd like that. Or Republicans will win from now on. Yeah. Democrats. It it, uh, he he was not well prepared. He he was not. He, He did a lot of commercials in a pickup truck because. It looks better than doing it, you know, at his Connecticut mansion or his penthouse in Manhattan. Yeah, it's like Bruce Rauner in those Carhartt jackets. I'm just a man of the people. Yeah, and it it helped with the primary, although we couldn't help but notice that, you know, he did did knock off former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Cleefish, who everybody assumed was going to be the nominee and everybody assumed was going to be Tony Evers because it was going to be this red wave year. Well, after that primary, I, I could be wrong, but I don't recall seeing Rebecca Cleefish anywhere on the campaign trail on behalf of Tim Michaels. So that that tells you that, again, the Republicans in disarray is is very much the narrative here and will be until the GOP figures out whether it wants to be the party of Trump or whether, like I just said about the legislature, are they ready to grow up and just engage in, in you know, normal appeals to the public? rather than either childish games or well-funded slander. I think I think I was actually just going to ask you to take a, a step back, and you, you've already done that on your own. I think the fascinating thing to watch now is this whole, what is going on with the Republican Party? I mean, if they would have taken the pain a few years ago, when Trump was even a candidate, you know, they you know, I was reading one former Republican, still a conservative who writes about politics. And they said, you know, there was an opportunity where Republicans could have repudiated Donald Trump and maybe they would have lost an election. Maybe they would have taken some pain. But look at where they are now. It's like they didn't avoid the pain. They've just they delayed it and they dragged it out. And right now, that's what they're experiencing. Is Donald Trump still going to be a force? Is Ron DeSantis the the new JFK. God help us for that one. Um, I uh, I think that um, I think that they are going to continue to be in disarray because I don't think any of them have any courage. I don't. I mean, look at what happens to a Republican with courage. They have to basically quit the Republican Party. Yes, they've chased all the moderates away. They, they yes. have, and there's there's no reason 
for for moderates to come into the party. And it, it, it leads me to what Ron Johnson was saying yesterday while, you know, uh, crowing about his his win. And uh, it's a soundbite that I use today and I'm going to use over and over again. He, he said something to the effect of, well, good people don't want to run for office anymore as long as there's a party out there that is willing to lie or say anything to win elections. And then you just cut back to me and I say, yeah, Ron, we know. Mm-hmm. Yep. Pat, thank you so much. Love. We're stuck with. Yeah, yeah. my pleasure, John. Very much. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll be calling soon, Mr. Kreitlow. So keep your phone handy. Will do. Take care. (laughs) You too. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more politics right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. This is Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT820. We just had a midterm election, and um, as a part of that... Abortion was on the um, ballot in a lot of areas and and people told legislators that they want a woman to have autonomy over her body in state after state after state. This was made clear States like Kentucky that wanted to remove, uh, wanted to say, you know, we don't necessarily want that in our country. No, no. California, no, no. Michigan, no, no. Women are telling legislators over and over again. There was, um, a, I'm going to be talking later today to Eric Zorn. And one of the things that he talks about in today's Picayune Sentinel is uh, some of the Republican reaction to this predicted red wave simply not materializing. And there was a a Republican pundit on Fox News who said, you know what? This is a repudiation. This is a repudiation, or as he put it, a searing indictment of the Republican Party. The message we've been sending to voters, they looked at it, they looked at what we've been saying, and they said, no thanks. As this guy said, the Republican Party needs to do a really deep, introspective look in the mirror now, because this is an absolute disaster. That's from a conservative pundit on Fox News. Bridget Leahy joins us now. She is with she's the vice president of public policy with Planned Parenthood Illinois Action. Bridget, regardless of whether or not we maintain control of the House or even the Senate, Women, I think, really spoke very clearly in this election. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, joining us on this post-election report. How are you, and what did you think about the midterms? Oh, I think that Tuesday was amazing. You know, all of the um, uh, consensus by pundits and pollsters and everyone that there was going to be this big red wave, well, it turned out to be this little red puddle or a trickle or a tiny little spot in some places. Um, We didn't see that big midterm sweep that you typically see. Um, And we defeated the odds nationally as well as in Illinois. And it was very different from what what we normally see. And that's because of 
abortion and voters speaking out with their ballot and saying, no, the Supreme Court went too far. We want to have people be able to make their own decisions about their bodies and about their health care. And we want to elect people who will stand up for our rights. And so I think that it, it was incredible. I, I was struck by how all of the pollsters, the pundits, the Republican Party underestimated pro-choice voters and underestimated the candidates who are out there running with a pro-choice message. They kept trying to say other things were important and other things mattered instead of listening to voters about what voters were saying. And if we look at states like Michigan that not only um, passed a constitutional amendment to recognize reproductive rights in their constitution, but also their legislature flipped and they retained their pro-choice governor, you see that half of the voters um, said abortion is a top issue for them. Mm -hmm. And it showed with the election. And we saw that in state after state. Same thing, Pennsylvania, a large number of voters said, this is a top issue for us. And so I think we learned um, that there is power in voting and that if we all exercise our rights, we can uh, work to a place where our rights are going to be protected. I uh, couldn't agree more. And I thought it was absurd as I was hearing all these pundits say, oh, well, yeah, you know, like back in June, women were really upset about the row thing. But, you know, now they're more worried about gas prices. And I thought to myself, really? You really believe that? And... And I remember uh, Michael Moore, the activist filmmaker, was interviewed by Joy Reid on her MSNBC program. And she was asking him about the red wave. And he was like, no. He's like, I don't believe it. He said, I don't believe for a minute that there's going to be a red wave. He said, if you honestly think that women have gotten over this whole idea of them losing their rights, that somehow... That's it's in the rear view mirror and, you know, what they're paying 20 cents more uh, at the gas station is now uh, on their mind front and center, as opposed to the fact that they have had their rights taken away from them. He said, no, he said, I think everybody in the mainstream media and the pollsters are seriously underestimating women. And I think he was right and he was proven right. And I think you and I felt that way. But it just astounded me how many people thought we were over it. We were over it, Bridget. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, is no, we don't forget about these things that are so fundamental to our lives and our well-being. The other group of folks they underestimated was young people, right? We, we hear, oh, young people don't care. They're so self-involved. They're, you know, they're living their lives out on social media. Well, we, we saw Gen Z voted in record numbers, and mm-hmm. they voted for progressive pro-choice candidates. So, yeah, I think we need to step back here and think about what people care about. You know, you can care about the economy and care about your fundamental freedoms at the same time. You can hold those two things in your mind. Very interesting 
I saw last night a report um, done by the Cook Political Report where they looked at voters and found that although there were voters who were kind of, as they described it, meh on the economy, like, well, the economy's not going that great, you know, blah, blah, blah. And normally that would be huge. Like, oh, those those voters, particularly independent voters, would go over to um, uh, Republicans in that kind of situation. What they were ignoring is those same voters also cared about reproductive rights. So while they, they weren't thrilled with the economy, the more important thing to them was their fundamental rights. I also want to add that for many people, your reproductive rights and your access to reproductive health care is an economic issue. People are making decisions about whether or not to have another child in part based on whether they can afford to do so. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the huge challenges, whether it's, you know, their decisions, we saw this during the pandemic, people were concerned about the uncertainty of the future. We see it when there are economic downturns, people decide not to have, and you'll see dips in the population based on that influence because having an, a child is in part has an economic impact on your life. That's not the only impact, but for some people, it can be a huge difference in their life. And your ability to access care and get affordable care, that's an economic impact on your life. And right now we are seeing millions of Americans who have had their reproductive rights taken away and they're being forced to travel. So suddenly mm-hmm. an abortion which they could afford now may be out of reach because they can't afford the extra five hundred or thousand dollars they need to get to where they need to be to get the abortion. Exactly. I saw an estimate uh, a couple of months ago that in I can't remember which southern state, but it was one of the states with um a highly restrictive uh, uh, bans on abortion that the the prediction was You know, there are certainly obviously still women who can take the time and have the money to travel out of state. But they were expecting that 5,000, the 5,000 babies would be born simply because of their mothers not having access to abortion care and why that's important. And, you know, the pro-life people would tell you, oh, well, that's great. Well, if that's great, where are the preschool programs Where are the food stamp benefits? Where is the free lunch or the free breakfast programs? Because a lot of these people, you know, wealthy, even middle class people, they can afford the time and the money to travel. It is the poor people who get hit by this, who can't take time off their job without losing their job. The people who need maybe assistance with rent or assistance with food or free preschool, or free school lunches. If Republicans really cared about life, it would be a total package. It would be, oh, yes, we want you to have more babies, and this is how we're going to support them. But that's not the case. That's not the case. Oh, poor people? Well, if they if they don't can't afford it, they shouldn't be having kids now, should they, Bridget? Well, I think I think that that's the, the, the challenging issues. If you look at this, many of the states or most of the southern states that have banned abortion, if you look at their health outcomes, you see that there is not that investment in making sure that people have healthy pregnancies. Um, the maternal health and infant mortality issues in southern states where abortion is banned 
are really, really challenging. That's not to say we don't have our own challenges here in the state of Illinois, but at least in Illinois, we have been moving forward with policies such as expanding Medicaid coverage for folks, um, expanding um, postpartum coverage for people who qualify for Medicaid so that they have more coverage after they have a baby, um, doing the early childhood education programs, child care programs. Those are all very, very important. And when it comes to decisions about your family, um, these are all factors that come into play. And so Yes, I think that people are not making these these decisions about how they vote in a complete vacuum. And a lot of pro-choice voters are also voting on a number of issues. And so it's, it's kind of the weighting of these things and understanding how they intersect with each other. Um, so... I'm just I'm just really, really pleased at the national scene, but also in Illinois, what I'm so pleased about is a lot of people were concerned that, not forgetting necessarily, but that we already had a law in place prior to the election that protects reproductive rights in our state. And would that mean that people in Illinois wouldn't care about the issue? And I think actually the opposite happened. People in Illinois saw what was happening all around them in the states that, you know, are right directly next door and realized we have something special and good here in our state and that our government has been stepping up and protecting our rights and our freedoms. And they wanted to keep that in place, which you saw in Illinois, a total repudiation of turning to a more conservative bent um, with the statewide um, office holders like Governor Pritzker winning resoundingly with the wins for the Illinois State Supreme Court um, as well as the pickups in pro-choice seats, seats in the legislature that flipped from anti-abortion to pro-choice. Um, Illinoisans really stepped up in this election and made their voices heard as well. I want to talk to you more about the Supreme Court races and some other things coming up. I'm speaking with a Bridget Leahy. She's the vice president of public policy with Planned Parenthood Illinois Action. We're going to continue our conversation right after this. Take Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Bridget Leahy, who's the vice president of public policy with Planned Parenthood Illinois Action. And she just mentioned um, two of the most important races that were on our ballot here in Illinois, the Supreme Court races. We were um, banging the drum for Mary Kay O'Brien and Elizabeth Liz Rochford uh, pretty much every day here on WCPT because no matter what legislation we pass, a partisan far-right Supreme Court is all too ready to strike these things down. We saw it at the level of the U.S. Supreme Court. Oh, Brett Kavanaugh saying, Roe v. Wade, that's settled all. That's precedent. We're not going to mess with that. Oops, yeah, we did. We did. We decided to change our mind. And if you think that can't happen at the state level, you are sadly mistaken. We really dodged a bullet, Bridget. Oh, yes. (laughs) Um, 
Yes, those were priority races for us. Um, I think a lot of the news coverage since the Supreme Court overturned Roe has focused on the policymaking going back to the states and looking at what legislatures are doing, right? You know, this state passed a ban or this state's enacting an old law that was in place. But they're not talking a lot about the courts. And we know that now that we can't rely on the federal courts to protect us, um, just like the policy went back to the legislatures and states, the policy now goes back to the judiciary in the states. So anything, any future lawsuits that would be happening um, to challenge, say, an Illinois law, like the Reproductive Health Act, would be happening in our state court system. So we needed to make sure that we had a state Supreme Court that was going to protect our rights. And this time around, there were two candidates running who who had fantastic records. Um, Mary Kay O'Brien has been a judge for many, many years with a, a great judicial record, as well as Elizabeth Rashford. She's a, a sitting judge as well. And so they they had really good records as, and good ratings by the bar associations for being qualified. And they were phenomenal. And then we had two opponents who had in their pasts stated um, or had records of not supporting abortion rights. So you had um, uh, Curran, who was running against Rashford, and he had a long social media history of being pretty uh, extreme far right. Um, He celebrated when the decision, the Supreme Court decision, was leaked about overturning Roe. He posted a celebratory post on Facebook. Um, And then you had Judge Burke, who was running against Mary Kay O'Brien, and he... um, He had gone to Illinois Right to Life Banquet, um, and there were pictures of him at the banquet. And Illinois Right to Life is a group that has been working for many, many years in Illinois to ban abortion. So we knew what we were up against, and we really had to mobilize. And we partnered with many other organizations to get the job done. And the big hurdle there was to make sure voters were aware of these uh, elections for the Supreme Court. Uh, We knew that Illinoisans are pro-choice, and we knew that they would support a pro-choice candidate, but they needed to know who those candidates were, and they needed to go and vote. And as Terry Cosgrove reminds me every chance he gets, we can't become complacent. Every election matters. If we've learned any lesson in the last 10 years, it is that it's never done. It's never finished. You know, even when you think, well, here in Illinois, I mean, I used to say to Terry Cosgrove, well, in Illinois, you know, we don't have anything to worry about. And he was like, Joan, hello. Are you are you paying attention? You know, are you kidding? Are you kidding me? Um, And, you know, and he was right. And it was a it was. Oh, yeah, now that now that you mention it, um I was talking to Kelly Cassidy who is um continuing the fight to put all kinds of protections in for healthcare providers, you know, like if a woman comes across state lines to get an abortion, she wants to make sure that whatever state she comes from doesn't send, you know, um personnel, police personnel to Illinois to arrest the doctor for doing something that may be legal in Illinois, but it's not legal where the woman lives and all this craziness. And I said to her, well, OK, that's great. 
what happens to all of these laws if we lose the Supreme Court? And she said, oh, she goes, it's all gone. It is all gone. Mm -hmm. You can count on it all being gone. And sometimes, you know, you think, well, we've passed a law, so that's settled. We don't have to worry about that anymore. But that's not true, is it? Well, no. First of all, I want to point out that the U.S. Supreme Court decided to overturn a 50-year precedent when they overturned Roe v. Wade. So we know, and, and mm. you know, precedent used to be sacrosanct, right? Um, mm. But apparently we can't, can't rely on that. So we do have to be vigilant. And in Illinois, it, always, it hasn't always been um, great here for reproductive rights. I have been doing this work for 30 years. And when I first came into the legislature, uh, we lost a lot of legislative battles. Um, we had a really hard time. And we had laws on the books that, thank goodness, we had federal courts that enjoined them. But, you know, we had a law on the books that said a husband could go into court and stop um, his wife from getting an abortion. Um, we had all kinds of different bad laws that um, the federal courts had stopped. And so um, I know that while we've made a lot of progress and we've made changes, um, things can go back. And so you have to constantly be vigilant. You have to stand up. And I know a lot of people out there are tired. I know that it's been a long several years of fighting back. Um, but, and, and as one, um, of our supporters said yesterday in a briefing call that we had, you know, I, uh, are we all just going to have to say every election is the election of our lives? And I said, unfortunately, we are in this time where it is an election that could completely make the difference in our lives. And until, we, um, you know, get out of this, this mode that we're currently in where um, our fundamental rights are being challenged. Uh, we are going to have to stay working really, really hard, which is why we're already starting to think about 2024. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, until the Republican ship writes itself, I mean, I was reading an editorial from the New York Times um, that called that said, well, one of the reasons we didn't have a red wave is because uh, so many of our candidates were knuckleheads. <laughs> I mean, I thought, well, that's you know, that's putting a fine point on it. If we get to the point where we can get Republicans like a Mark Kirk or a Charles Percy, and that they are representative of what the Republican Party is, when we if we get to the point where maybe Republicans are not afraid to be pro-choice again, like they once were not afraid to be pro-choice, then maybe it won't be the election where our life depends on it. But I think we are, sadly, a long ways away from that state of affairs. Yes, I I think it's going to take some time. I really do believe that we work better when we have moderation, um, the Republican Party has shifted extremely to the right. Uh, and we used to in Illinois have Republican candidates who were fiscal conservatives, but moderate when it came to various issues like reproductive rights, uh, LGBTQ issues. Um, you know, Governor Edgar, I saw uh, he was quoted on election night saying that the Republican Party really has to look at itself and decide whether or not it's going to really 
make a difference in the state of Illinois, because right now all they're doing is pulling away from voters. They're not listening, as I said at the beginning of our conversation. They're not listening to the voters. They're not listening to the people. They are trying to tell people what they should care about, and they're trying to tell voters that they should be the ones to change, right? And Mm -hmm. voters are saying, I'm having none of it. Um, And that's why you're seeing in our state legislature, you have the House now has even more of a supermajority than it had. It's got a record supermajority, I think, now. The Senate still has a supermajority because in many parts of our state, the, the GOP candidate is just completely out of touch with the community. And the community is saying, you know, I know that things like um, critical race theory aren't being taught in grade schools. Why are you arguing about this stuff? Let's talk about the things that are really important to me and stop trying to take away my rights and the rights (laughs) of my neighbors and my friends. You know, let's let's get back to solving problems, right? And and that's another thing that's missing is we're not hearing about solutions very much. Um, So I really hope that change will happen, but I think that we are the ones who are going to have to make it. Yeah, um, I think you're absolutely right, Bridget. Expect, expect things to change. Every single person out there, everyone who's listening. First of all, I want to thank everyone who's listening who voted, who got their friends to vote, who may have volunteered on a campaign. Thank you. Thank you all to everyone in the audience who is involved. And stay involved. Keep involved because it's up to each one of us to make sure that we make change we want to see in the world. Bridget, thank you so much. It is a pleasure to talk to you. We are going to be breaking for news now. We're going to be back with more right after this. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. Carolyn Shapiro is somebody we haven't talked to for a while. She is a professor of law and co-director of the Institute on the Supreme Court at Chicago Kent College of Law. Carolyn joins us now. Carolyn, welcome back. How have you been? I'm good, and it's good to be back. It's good to have you back. You know, I always have a plan when I ask you to come on the radio with me of what we're going to talk about. And things happen, and that plan goes right out the window (laughs) because of the current fire hose of events that are coming at us every day. So... Um, let's throw the plan. I will try to get back to the plan, but I think we have to start with affirmative action. Um, uh, the court now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and I probably don't have this quite right. The U.S. Supreme Court is going to be hearing a case brought by, I believe it's an Asian student that's affirmative action isn't fair. It's discrimination and it should be tossed aside. Do I have that right? Sort of. Um, Okay, explain it better. All right, so they already heard argument. They heard argument on Halloween, actually. Uh, But we won't get in the opinion for a while. The, the, The case was brought by an organization called Students for Fair Admissions, and the the claim is that affirmative, affirmative action as practiced by Harvard and the University of North Carolina discriminates against Asian American students 
Students for Fair Admission is, is an organization that was actually started by a, a guy named Ed Bloom, who has for many years been a real uh, activist against affirmative action. He himself is, is white. He's not Asian American. Um, but there are Asian American students and, and others who, who are who are participating on that side. And there are also Asian American students and others who are opposed to the, this lawsuit. It's worth pointing that out. The argument in the case is basically under what circumstances or at all can a university or college take race into account in admissions? Historically, the law has been that universities and colleges can do so when it's necessary to create a diverse class of people, of students, which is itself necessary for uh, for as an educational as a feature of education to have have a diversity uh, in your in the in the overall class. There are justices on the court who think that that should it should not be the law. They think that any consideration of race should be un, held unconstitutional. That includes Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, quite possibly and probably just Chief Justice Roberts. Um, so yes, the that is that is the, the sort of the scorecard where we stand right now. And if I understand it, the whole idea with affirmative action was to try to level the playing field. What I'm talking about is if you grow up in a middle-class or affluent white family, chances are you go to really good schools. You not only learn stuff, but you learn how to take tests. Uh, you learn, you know, how to get ahead. You, um, I remember reading Ibram X. Kendi in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He wanted to go to graduate school, and he took this course that promised that it would raise, you know, because you have to take a test to get into graduate school. And this course promised that anybody who took this course would get their GRE score boosted by X number of points. So he signed up to take the course. And what he realized, he said, this course wasn't about giving me more information. This course wasn't about deepening my knowledge on topics. This course was designed to teach me how to take the test, where to focus my attention, how much uh, a time to allot for this section versus that section, how to, how to make sure that, you know, which parts of the test you did first. And he said, I realized that because of certain educational opportunities I didn't have as a young person, that I didn't know this stuff that other kids do. And, you know, a lot of the quote-unquote really great high schools are always accused of they don't just teach subject matter, but they teach like, oh, you know, we're going to have you write an essay every week. And, you know, because we know that you're going to be writing a lot of essays when you take some of these real tests that are going to determine, you know, whether or not you get into an Ivy League school. And so he said, you know, you could look at affirmative action as something that is discriminatory. But if your goal is racial equity, Maybe you have to discriminate, at least in the short term, to make up for these deficits that if you come from a poor area, if you come from an underserved community, there's just 
stuff you don't know about how the world works that can make you take a test and score 200 points lower than the kid who came from an affluent community. It really gets very sticky, doesn't it? Well, it gets very sticky, and one of the reasons it gets sticky is that the Supreme Court has held for a long time that leveling the playing field or trying to correct for gen what they sometimes refer to as general societal discrimination is not a legitimate basis for having an affirmative action program. So the only, at least with respect to higher education, so the only, the, the, the legal standard that, that's in place is that in order to do something race conscious, a state entity like the University of North Carolina, for example, has to be able to show that doing so was necessary to serve to achieve a compelling government interest and that whatever it is that they're doing is narrowly tailored to achieve that purpose. Now, the necessary for a compelling government interest means you have to say, what is a compelling government interest? And the Supreme Court has rejected the idea that remedying general societal discrimination is a compelling government interest that legitimizes the use of race. What they've said in the context of higher education admissions is diversity is a compelling government interest because of the educational benefits of diversity. Now, one of the things that that means... I'm confused. I'm confused. I'm officially confused. Well, yes, it's confusing because it doesn't comport with the intuitions of many, many, many people who support affirmative action. And it it probably doesn't it, it, and it means that the lawyers end up sort of tying themselves in knots a little bit to not talk about leveling the playing field. Because, well, some level of you know diversity itself is, in fact, an important interest for a college or university in wanting to have. You don't want a class where everybody is the same or comes from the same kind of background. That's where that's, most universities and colleges don't want that. Um, but... The, the, you see the lawyers kind of tying themselves in knots not to say, well, of course, African-American applicants or other applicants of color may not have had the same opportunities. And so we have to read their their applications differently or understand their applications differently. That that's or we want to remedy for you know, the, the years of historic racism that and that have led to African-Americans and other people of color, but especially African-Americans, being more likely to live in impoverished areas and go to less well-resourced schools, et cetera, et cetera, some of the stuff you were saying before. They're not really allowed to say that because that's been ruled out. Um, that This is one of these areas where law and the, the legal standards just don't, track the way most people think and talk about the particular issue. All right. Carolyn Shapiro and I are going to take a break. Uh, We're talking about the U.S. Supreme Court. We're going to be back with more right after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with Carolyn Shapiro, who's a professor of law at Chicago Kent College of Law. She's a co-director of the Institute on the Supreme Court. So we've been just been talking about this affirmative action um, arguments that were made with the Supreme Court. Is this the kind of thing? Are we going to not get a decision on this till June, Carolyn? 
Well, I don't think we'll get a decision certainly before March or probably April. It might not take all the way to June because they they heard the case relatively early in the year, but it's going to be quite a few months. And I know that Clarence Thomas made it quite clear that he was ready to go after uh, gay marriage. Where does the where does that stand with the Supreme Court? There's not currently a, a case either pending or really uh, that I know of in the pipeline that would allow the court to to reach that issue. It's something to keep an eye on, but I don't think it's an imminent an imminent issue at this point. You know, there's been a lot of discussion, particularly since we seem to have an extremely partisan um, Supreme Court right now, a lot of discussion about what should happen, whether there should be term limits or what kind of court reform, whether there should be, you know, a code of ethics they have to adhere to, or whether even the court should be expanded. We did not in this midterm election get a red wave, but, you know, things are still going to be pretty close between the Democrats and the Republicans. Do you see any votes available, any appetite for President Biden to try to accomplish any kind of court reform in these next two years? Not at the moment, although if the court continues to do things that are as unpopular as Dobbs, for example, or strikes down aspects of progressive legislation and the administrative state that might make it difficult for the government to respond to climate change, for example, then I could really see there being an increased move towards court reform. It's certainly something that's being discussed at a much more intense level than I've ever been aware of before. There are proposals to do a lot of different things. I think, the, the in my opinion, the best substantive proposal, which is term limits, probably requires a constitutional amendment. And I think that will come to that. That's hard to do. Very, very hard to do. Uh, But it could happen, especially if it looks like something else is likely to to pass, such as uh, adding seats to the court. At that point, if it looks like that's in the cards or, or likely gaining support, I think term limits might actually have some real legs. Now, a code of conduct, I think, is probably a code of ethics is probably the most likely reform to pass. And I certainly think it would be a good idea. But I honestly don't think it changes very much. So I'm I'm for it. But I don't think it, it, it will do much in terms of what the court does and how the court, how the justices decide their decide the cases. And correct me if I'm wrong, but adopting a code of ethics That's not something that President Biden could come up with or even the House of Representatives or the Senate. Doesn't that have to be something that the Supreme Court members themselves come up with, write down and all agree to? Not necessarily. There are codes of ethics for other federal judges that and there are actually a few aspects of that that apply even to the Supreme Court that were passed by the Congress. And, and so they're, they're statutes. I, I don't I think there would be challenges uh, or and the Supreme Court itself could say, well, we're not obligated to follow this. But I think if Congress actually passed a code of ethics, unless it was there was something particularly bizarre about it. I think that certainly most members of the court would would follow it, 
But I thought that there was there was no body that had the authority to impose a code of ethics on them, that if that I thought that they were sort of basically above the law. That that was my understanding. Are you saying that I I'm wrong and Congress could do something? I think Congress could do something. Yes. I think that Congress has done that for lower courts, and I don't think there's any difference between what it, its ability to do that for lower courts and its ability to do that for the Supreme Court. I also think there are people who would make the opposite argument. So I can't tell you 100% how it would play out. Do we know or whether or not... I know we don't know about the discussions that they have privately, though Elena Kagan did let slip that... Um, when it comes to the affirmative action case, that uh, she and Clarence Thomas look at it differently. She said, you know, he feels that because he was able to pull himself up by his bootstraps, that affirmative action isn't something we should have. It isn't uh, it isn't necessary. So I thought that was kind of a nice little insight into some of these discussions. But as far as we know, Has anybody had the discussion about recusal, about when a Supreme Court justice should have to step back from a case where they might be in some way personally involved? I know that Katanji Brown at what point said that there was a I don't know if it's the affirmative action case or another case, but there was some case involving Harvard. She went to Harvard. Mm -hmm. She said she would she would recuse. And then somebody, I don't know, John Roberts said, well, you know, you don't really have to. And then I thought she came out and said, well, I'll decide later. I mean, they can pretty much do whatever they want, can't they? To a large extent right now, yes, they can. And she did say during her confirmation hearings that she would recuse herself from the Harvard version of the affirmative action case because she served on the Harvard Board of Overseers until very recently. But she still can sit on the UNC case, the University of North Carolina case, which is asking effectively the same question. I don't there's I do not know whether anybody the real question is, has anybody said anything to Clarence Thomas about his ruling on matters that have to do with January 6th and that might implicate his wife in particular? Uh, and I don't have any knowledge or any way of getting any knowledge about whether that's happened. If it has happened, the person who would have done it would have been the chief justice and he would have probably taken Thomas Clarence Thomas aside and said, Clarence is the problem for the institution for you to rule on cases like this. I don't believe that that I, I mean, I think there was a recent order that issued in which there was some question about whether he would recuse himself, but and he did not. So I but I don't know whether anybody's spoken to him about it as it stands right now. The recusal decisions in that context are entirely up to each individual justice. So the chief justice could raise it with Clarence Thomas, but cannot force him to do anything. So Clarence Thomas can just look at him and say, stuff it. I'm not. Go away. He could. Yes, he could. Okay. so all right. That's you know, that's but I again, I think that's something Congress could legislate about. In addition to this affirmative action case, what else should we be paying attention to that they have either already heard or are going to hear? There are two really big, important cases related to democracy on the docket. One is a case called Merrill versus Milligan, which was argued uh, in, in October. That's a case about the Voting Rights Act, and it's a case about the extent to which states, when they draw 
redistricting maps have to take race into account. The the argument being made by the state of Alabama in that case is essentially that the Voting Rights Act itself, a statute that is was designed to implement the 15th Amendment, which expressly uses the word race, uh, is somehow supposed to be race blind. It, it's a it, it, if that are if the court accepts this argument, it will really be devastating for the use of the uh, Voting Rights Act to ensure fair representation when it comes to uh, redistricting. The other case is uh, called Moore versus Harper, and it's going to be argued in December. This is a case involving what's known as the independent state legislature theory. It's a kind of technical theory, but the bottom line is that the the Constitution gives states, and in particular state legislatures, the job of regulating federal elections. And at least the first instance, Congress can step in and do some regulation itself. And the question is, since it says state legislatures in the Constitution, does that mean that when the state legislatures act, they act in a kind of law-free zone where their own state constitutions and state courts and other bodies can't actually restrict what they do at all. It's, it's a bizarre argument that, uh, un, that is completely unsupported by, by, by history, by practice, by logic, and would have really dire consequences in the sense that it would allow highly gerrymandered legislatures to, to run roughshod over their own citizens' state constitutional rights. So that's going to be a pretty and and it shifts a lot of power to the U.S. Supreme Court to oversee what happens in federal elections in the states. I love talking with Carolyn Shapiro, but in the break after we wrap up, I always want to spend that time screaming um, because (laughs) of what what is happening. Carolyn, thank you. Please keep joining us and and explaining all this stuff to it is so important that we not take our eye off the ball. That is the Supreme Court. Thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Carolyn Shapiro, professor of law and co-director of the Institute on the Supreme Court at Chicago Kent College of Law. We're going to take a break and be back with Eric Zorn right after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I can see why Eric Zorn likes fiddle music. I don't think you can be unhappy when you're listening to music like that. And it just makes you want to smile and get up and dance around the room. Eric Zorn is here every Thursday. We talk about the Picayune Sentinel, his newsletter that goes out Thursday for free and Tuesday and Thursday to subscribers. Hello, Eric. How are you? Hey, John. Doing all right. Although it's, uh, I just noticed online that uh, Lauren Bobert has lurched into the lead over Adam Fish out in. <laughs> Out in Colorado, I've been following that race really closely and hoping very much that Warren Bobert goes back to private. Oh, yeah. Line. And it's now it looks like about 800 votes. Adam Frisch is behind, but there's still some votes out there. I just don't know exactly where they're from and whether he's still got a chance. But uh, 
that would have been that would really put a topping on a pretty good week of news for uh, yes yes um absolutely and uh, yeah i'm i know that everybody's saying well you know um, they're not it's not decided yet but um so you know what i'm going to hang on to the it's not decided yet and stop there for a while let's let's savor it as as long as we possibly can um i i think that i personally wasn't surprised that we did as well as we did on midterm night. I know a lot of people were, but I think that counting the anger of women out and, oh, I don't know if you saw this. I was reading this earlier to my audience. Uh, Carl Rove, who, as you know, is not exactly a moderate Republican, wrote in the Wall Street Journal today an op-ed that said basically the reason that Republicans had a problem too many nominees were nuts or knuckleheads. <laughs> I love that. From a, well, yeah. I mean, there, there, there is some, uh, there's obviously some truth to that. When you look at, at, at how so, some of these election results went, you look at, at yes, uh, you know, in, in Ohio, J.D. Vance did win, but he ran well behind uh, Mike DeWine, the governor there, who, who uh, did, did much better. as a, so, and, and in Georgia, uh, you know, Herschel Walker fell a little bit behind and Warnock and and uh, and Brian Kemp won by about eight points so that the crazier Republicans seem to lose a significant amount of their vote during that um, uh, the election. So that I, I think the message, the overall message, that I, the takeaway that I got from this election is by and large, not everywhere, but certainly across the country, that crazy just isn't selling that well anymore. That uh, there is some desire on the part of the Republican Party to start moving back toward normal, uh, or at least away from the election-denying, insurrectionist uh, devotees of, of this crazed narcissist at Mar-a-Lago. That the, <clears throat> the party is has is realizing, and you see see some of these quotes from a lot of Republican officials that, you know, Chris Christie says that Trump's political instincts are not about the party. They're not about the country. They're about him. Uh, Mike Cernovich, the conservative blogger who uh, was a big backer of Trump, finally posted a message the other day saying that uh, the midterms were an ass kicking and, and uh, at least no one has to suck up to Trump anymore. And the country doesn't care anymore about the 2020 election. Trump can't move on. Tells him, uh, you know, goodbye. So I, I think there's a there is a sense out there that Trump is an anchor on the Republican Party and that uh, they realize that if you, you know the, the average out you know party out of power in a midterm election picks up about 28 seats I think historically speaking in the last you know as we look back and we were talking last week I don't know if I can't remember if you and I were talking about it or not but certainly the, you know the, the the pundits were were saying that this might end up being one of these these uh, shellackings you know when when uh, what was it Trump uh, I'm sorry Clinton uh, lost 52 seats in 94 and, and Obama lost 63 seats in the house in 2018 and even the Republicans under Trump lost 40 seats in 2018 so we were thinking that it was going to be of that magnitude and the fact that it, it's going to be a handful right it's going to be maybe 10 maybe 12 maybe 8 I don't know what it, what the final tally is going to be but but it was an enormously disappointing night for Republicans, and you have to point your finger right at Trump. That's got to be the reason. Um, I know you were uh, quoting, I believe it's Mark Thiessen. I don't know how he says, says his name. Uh, it was a Fox commentator 
who were who was saying, oh, you know, Republicans clearly, you know, they've got to make some changes uh, if they want to move forward. I thought it was very interesting. I don't know if you read the bulwark their their midday columnist Charlie Sykes writes in the morning. Jonathan Last writes in the afternoon, and I forget the guy who writes in the late afternoon, early evening. But I love Jonathan Last. He's very thoughtful, and he said that the real problem for Republicans, he thinks, is yes, they're they they sound like they're kind of starting to stand up to Trump now, but they're not they're not walking away from the big lie. So it's kind of like. Well, if Trump isn't going to get us wins, we'll walk away from him. But they're not really walking away from him. Like if Trump does something to come on strong in the next week or two, all of this, well, we're past Trump is going to drop away because it isn't in their core. They're not really rejecting the um, amoral man. They're not really rejecting the big lie. They're just saying, well, you know, he doesn't look like he's performing for us to better move on. Oh, wait. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He's coming back. He's coming back stronger than ever. We were mistaken. We we really do love him. He's, you know, see what I'm saying? That it's not, you're right. People are starting to say these things, but... Are they just looking at, well, you know, well, like, what have you done for me today? Not, oh, I'm rejecting you because you're a bad, evil man. Well, it is all about consequences, right? I mean, that's what they're talking about. That's the, they don't, the, the morality question, look at Herschel Walker, right? I mean, Herschel Walker is a dishonest, poorly informed hypocrite who has no business being anywhere near the U.S. Senate, but the party's going to rally around it because he still has a functioning finger to punch the button to vote yes or no on legislation, and that's what they need, and that's all they care about. And, and in a sense, if Don, when Donald Trump looked like or looks like, when he looks like the road to political power, they'll support him. They're not going to care about any of those other issues. And we spent all these years saying, oh, you know, we could never have a divorced person be president or you can never mm-hmm. have someone who's caught having everyone's like all upset about Bill Clinton having an affair and so on. Well, well you have this incredible raft of, of amoral, unprincipled people running for office, uh, sort of grotesque people running for office, and, and no, nobody seems to care anymore. And I, I think it's, it's because we're all in our, in our silos. And the, the, I don't look upon the results here of this, of this election as being so overwhelming Thumbs up for Joe Biden. If you, if you look at the, the polls, you know, they have a sort of a, a, a very large number, percentage of people saying the country's on the wrong track right now. And, and you've got uh, uh, people who are, who are saying they, they, the New York Times had a poll that was out saying that somewhere around 61 percent, I want to say, of, of, um, of Democrats want a different nominee coming up in the in the in, in 2024 and 73 percent of independents want somebody else nominated from biden and and uh so it, it looks to me like like this is not about joe biden it's not about democratic policies and when mark mark Thiessen was saying yeah look at what's going on here you've got this this incredibly high inflation you've got a border crisis you've got crime that's uh that's that's spiking and and yet the Voters looked at the Republican alternative and said, no, thanks. And I don't think that's about Biden. I think that's about fear of what the Republican Party has come to stand for, the the the, the, the craziness, the anti-democratic. The nuts and the knuckleheads. Well, exactly. And, and, and In know, the words of Carl Rove. Rove. 
Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're Christian nationalists and the people who want to take away uh, women's right to choose. Uh, yeah, you look at the uh, there, there were what uh, were there four? I think there were four referendums around the country mm-hmm. uh, about abortion, and and uh, the abortion rights side won every single one of them. Yep. And you know that's where the public is, and the the, the the public is not where the Republican Party is. And the public still, I believe, by and large, believes in a democratic form of government, believes in free and fair elections, and doesn't believe in trying to suppress the vote. And I think that this vote was a repudiation of Republicans, not so much an embrace of Democrats. And Democrats shouldn't get too complacent about this. They've got they've got work to do. They they did not do as well as they have done historically with Hispanic voters. And I would really like to see them uh, see if they can rectify that. See if they can figure out what have they done, what are they doing that is not appealing to that demographic. Now they may not be able to get there because Hispanic voters are maybe not as as liberal and democratically minded as. As uh, as maybe we thought, it's, it's fairly culturally conservative uh, people in in many ways, very religious people, and uh, it might be that that's not a a constituency or or a, or a demographic that you can get that easily. But I think it is important for the Democratic Party not to not to think that oh we're going to be fine because voters seem to be sick of Donald Trump because it, it looks I me mean, Trump might not even be around in a couple of years. It, uh, the, if you look at the New York Post in the last couple of days, they I mean, his favorite newspaper, and they're trashing him. You see the cover today? Yeah. What I don't what? understand is, yeah, I mean, the New York Post is owned by the Murdochs, as is the Wall Street Journal. And both of those papers have been very, very willing to publish a lot of anti-Trump stuff recently. Um, which led a lot of people to say, oh, Rupert Murdoch, you know, the he's lost faith or, you know, he never liked Trump anyway. And now he's really ready to turn on him, except Rupert Murdoch's most powerful voice, Fox, has not done a, an anti-Trump pivot of, uh, to any real extent. Um, so I don't I don't know. Um, the New York Post, though, has really been has, has sort of taken off. The gloves when it comes to Donald Trump. Eric, we've got to we've got to take a break. Eric Zorn and I are going to continue this discussion right after a quick break. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT eight twenty. Attention, everyone! Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT. It is Thursday, and on Thursday, the Picayune Sentinel comes out, and Eric Zorn joins us to talk about this. We've been talking about uh, the midterms. We've been talking about uh, Donald Trump. We are doing what we always do, which is pretty much solving the world's problems, if only if only they would listen. Um, before we get on to our next serious topic, Eric, uh, tell us again, how are ticket sales going for uh, your your Songs of Good Cheer? Is that right? Songs of Good Cheer? Do I have that right? Songs, yes, you do. Songs of Good Cheer. Yeah, we have two of the shows are sold out. I think Whoop. Sunday afternoon and Saturday afternoon and Friday and Saturday night have some tickets left. Yeah, Mary Schmeek and I have been doing this for 24 years. At the Old Town School, we get together a, a band of really talented local musicians, mostly folk music, but we've got some uh, jazz musicians that play with us. And we lead the audience, we give them a songbook, and we lead them in, uh, in singing seasonal songs. Some of them are ones that people know, you know, Joy to the World and so on, but some, but other ones are ones that, that you've probably never heard. And we <clears throat> we always do a lot of research and find some great, great material. And 
I'm really excited about our cast this year. I'm really excited about our material, and uh, we're only doing four shows. We we have done up to seven, but but uh, with with COVID, we we're just we're ramping back up again, <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. that's a, it's a it's a, it's a really good time. It's a, it's a terrific uh, terrific. Uh, and did you learn something new in Fiddle Camp that you will be sharing with the audience? Not at, not at Fiddle Camp, not uh, with the audience there, but I, I learned a lot of stuff at Fiddle Camp, yes. I, uh, I spent about five days in the mountains of West Virginia with really great musicians, swapping tunes and learning new ones. And, uh, yeah, back to work now. So, but, uh, <laughs> um, We don't have a huge amount of time. Uh, to get into all the different permutations of what's going on with the controversy around the hideout. Um, but I did want to focus on one tiny part of it. Uh, there's a reporter, John Greenfield, that wanted to know, you know, the, uh, an employee accused the hideout of a lot of um, problems, a lot of them racial, not being treated well. The hideout is going to close and take a hiatus till 2023. And um a reporter we both know, John Greenfield, decided he was going to dig into the situation and find out what really happened. Long story short, you know, he seemed to talk to a lot of people. He seemed to say, OK, pretty factually, here's what this person said. Here's what this happened. This happened. And all well and good as far as it goes. Uh, but then John believes, as he has posted on social media, that he has now been uh basically banned from publishing anything in the reader because of this reporting that he did. I um I I don't I've always loved Tracy Bame. I've talked to her. I was supporting her when she was in that kerfuffle with um uh Leonard Goldman and Goodman, yes. Goodman. Goodman, Goodman, Goodman sorry, yes. Good, Goodman. And it it seems out of character for her to retaliate because maybe he dug deeper into a story that he felt the reader should have, you know, dug deeper into before they reported on it. What's your take on on that about John Greenfield well, being shown the door at the reader? Well, he was shown the door at the reader. Uh, I did talk to Tracy Bame about it, and and we went off the record, so I really can't really reveal any of that that conversation. Uh, but it is true that John is no longer going to be writing for the reader, and that clearly uh, so, some of it had to do with the fact that he was pretty aggressive in his criticism of the reader in the piece that he posted to Medium, uh, which is linked in the Picayune Sentinel, where he kind of goes through all the the details and the allegations. I happen to think, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of the reader, and I've, I've you know used and read the reader for 40 years now at least and uh, I think they really fell down on this particular story that they they posted a column by somebody who was the, the friend of the disgruntled employee who basically called out the hideout and said he thought they had misbehaved and they published an editor's note saying that it didn't matter what actually happened and this is the, the point and I'll get to it quickly which is that this former employee he was fired in the spring uh, it's come back now, all these months later, after processing or whatever he's done, to air out a bunch of grievances in a fairly vague fashion. Uh, he, you know, there are a lot of questions I have about some of the things that he alleges. He alleges that somebody spit on, a customer spit on him over a mask mandate, and he said, Man, leadership did not support me. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know what happened to this incident. I, I don't know what he wanted. I don't know anything about this, but I want to know more. Uh, he says he was yelled and cursed at by 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 a, uh, a performer there, and, and management didn't didn't uh, suspend the person's 
performing privileges or whatever. But I want to know what happened there. What, you know, what, mm-hmm. what, I, just, I feel like it's a lot to know. And the, the reader says, doesn't think it matters, that, that all that matters is that this guy experienced or felt like he was being treated uh, in a racist fashion. I don't think that somebody's feelings like that un investigated and uncorroborated should be enough to close down the hideout. And that, and that's really what this is about, which is that a bunch of performers, uh, including uh, Ben Jarowski, the former uh, reader column, or the reader columnist and former host on your station, that, that Ben and his co-host for a talk show that he did at the hideout just decided to leave. And I, I challenged Ben on his podcast. The other day. I said, why? What, what do you know here? This is way too vague. You're, you're shutting down this major institution in Chicago that you're participating in the shutting down of it uh, by participating in his boycott. The, the hideout may not survive. It's in the shadow of Lincoln Yards there. Sterling Bay would like nothing better than to get a hold of the hideout property. And so they're suspending operations there for two months because all these performers, without doing any due diligence as far as I can tell, decided they were, they were going to side with this employee and not perform there. I just don't think that's fair. That's not justice. That's not that's not how we should do things. We should we should ask for the, you know to learn the other side. We should find out what really happened. The former employee is not, uh, you know, uh, DeVille, Mikel DeVille, he is not giving any interviews. He is not going to elaborate. He's not going to explain his, his accusations. And, and I don't think that's good enough. I, and and, I, and I, it may be good enough. I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily taking the side of the hideout here. I'm saying I'm taking the side of journalism. I'm taking the side of finding the truth. And the Chicago reader that I grew up reading or that I've been reading for the last time would have done that. They would not have published a, a piece saying, oh, we believe in this employee and we don't believe the hideout. We think he was mistreated. And and so that's where I am on this. I, I think that, that, that the reader itself fell down journalistically and that, and that uh, to boycott this place for these performers to unilaterally say they're not going to play there based on these somewhat vague allegations – I want to know more before I'm going to condemn the hideout or, or, or say that this guy it was justified in the in, in shutting this place down. So that's why. And I one am. of the one of the things that I think one of the points that I think John made that I thought was particularly pertinent because I know that Ben's argument was that um, that by not refuting or repudiating what the employee said, the hideout's owners were essentially. Um, basically affirming that what he said was correct. And as well, I think it was John pointed out, they actually said, you know, our HR a consultant has said we have to be very careful in what we say about this and how we say it. So I got the feeling that they wanted to be more direct in their response to these charges, but they had been warned that legally they they shouldn't do that. And to say that because they didn't do that, that means they're agreeing. I I, I was very uncomfortable with that. Kind yeah, of logic. yeah, I Yes, I, I thought that argument was really poor because we all know we live in a very litigious society. And if, you, if you're an employer, you can't get into a public tit for tat with a former employee and giving various versions of stories because you're going to end up in court. That's not smart. The, the owners of the hideout, they reached out. They said they would be willing to participate in some restorative justice. They wanted to talk through this. They wanted to, to do better, they said. Uh, but that wasn't enough for these people. They have to, they had to keep, they had to close it down. And I, I just think that the, that the bands and the hosts and everybody else who did this really should have asked for more in the way of information before they jumped to boycott this, this institution, which is a Chicago treasure. You know that, Joan. It's, it's been there for a quarter of a century. It has hosted all kinds mm-hmm. of events, not just musical events. And it's always and, been a very progressive organization. Right. A lot of pol- political and, people held stuff there. 
Um, yes. And, and I just and want I'm, you to know that no matter what stance you take, Eric, you will never be banned from my show. OK, you can disagree with me till the cows come home and we will still have these discussions every Thursday. Eric Zorn, Tiki and Sentinel. Um, that's going to do it for me. Uh, Driving at home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at oh, let's make it two o'clock. What do you say? Have a great evening. Good night. <laughs>